You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War episode 153. Last episode we set the stage on both sides of the line for the actions of 1918. The Italians had just experienced a disaster at Caporetto, but they were recovering. The Austrians had just won a tremendous victory at the same battle, but they were having issues repairing their broken army. This week we will cover the actions of both of these armies during 1918. The first half of our episode will cover the Austrian attacks, which began in the middle of June. Then the second half will cover the Italian attacks at the Battle of Vittorio Veneto, one of the cooler-sounding battle names of the war, in my opinion. These events over the summer and autumn of 1918 will set us up for our discussions in episode 3 of this series, where we will discuss the end of the war and its aftermath for the Italians and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Interestingly enough, the root of the Austrian attacks in 1918 did not even occur in the year 1918, and not even in the last half of 1917, but instead in March. After the Germans launched their spring offensive in March 1918, the French let it be known that the Austro-Hungarian Emperor, Karl, had in March 1917 floated peace offers to the French. This, in and of itself, was not a problem. The Germans had also floated peace offers during 1917. The problem was that the Austrians did not completely deny the French desires to recapture Alsace and Lorraine. This made the Germans rather angry. As far as they were concerned, Alsace-Lorraine was not even on the negotiating table, no matter what happened. This resulted in a very tense meeting the next time Karl met with Wilhelm at Spa, about a month after the news got out. At this meeting, the German leader quickly forced Karl to agree to attack Italy once again. During this conversation with the Kaiser, Karl would promise a two-pronged attack from the Asiago and across the River Piave. Both of these attacks would seek to drive the Italians from the areas around Venice and then take the city itself, which if accomplished would have been a huge blow to the Italians. The Austrian commander at the front, Borivik, 
was about as far from optimistic about these attacks as was humanly possible. He was really quite negative about the chances of any large Austrian attacks, and for that matter, about the chances of the Central Powers winning the war at all. Instead of throwing what was left of the army away on more fruitless attacks, he wanted to preserve the strength of the army as long as possible, because he feared that after the war there would be widespread unrest in the empire, and at that time the army would be called upon to keep the country together. For the record, in this assumption, he was absolutely correct. He might have supported a small, limited attack, but that is not what the Germans had demanded, and it was not what Karl had promised. While Borivik had his doubts, with Karl ordering the attack and Conrad, who commanded the troops on the Asiago Plateau, fully behind the effort, Borivik had no choice but to prepare as best as possible. Preparations for the offensive would begin in mid-April, with the target of mid-June for the attack. Borivik would tell his men that, quote, For this, gentlemen, could well be the last battle. The fate of our monarchy and the survival of the empire depend on your victory and the sacrifice of your men. End quote. While Borivik was very pessimistic about their chances, the Austrian army was at least looking strong on paper. There were over 50 divisions on the Italian front, and there would be 10 in reserve behind. This representative strength of 2.8 million men or so, at least if the divisions had been at full strength. The problem was, of course, that they were not at full strength. Instead, many divisions were at three-quarters or even one-half strength, and some were as low as a third. Even new battalions being sent to the front were being formed with their units at half-strength from the get-go, right from the start, before they even got into the trenches. This meant that instead of 2.8 million men, the Austrian army only had about 950,000 combat-effective troops to throw into the attack. For the attack, 23 divisions would be placed on the Asiago, and 15 would be placed on the Piaf. The latter would be the more important of the two attacks, with its objectives being none other than the city of Venice itself. The Austrians would attempt to use a system similar to what they had done with the Germans at the Battle of Caporetto, utilizing infiltration tactics and assault troops to break through the Italian lines. After detailed planning and preparations were complete, the date for the attack was settled on June 15th. While the 15th was supposed to be the date for the entire offensive, the attack on the Asiago would actually happen two days early. This change was made after it was discovered, due to a deserter, that the Italians knew exactly what was planned for the attack, and exactly when it would happen. Conrad hoped that by starting the attack early, it would throw the Italians into disarray, and this meant that the assault troops would move forward at 7.30am on the 13th of June, and they made some good initial progress. Most of the success came in the areas where the front was covered by fog, just as it had been at Caporetto. While the fog hindered the efforts of the Austrian artillery, it helped to hide the Austrian attackers, making them far less vulnerable to the Italian artillery and machine guns. But they did not make it all the way through the Italian defenses, and were instead slowed and stopped in a method very similar to what usually happened on the Western Front. Conrad then committed most of his reserves to try and restart the advance, but this was unsuccessful, and it just meant more casualties. The attack on the Piaf remained on schedule, and on 3 a.m. on the 15th, the artillery fire began. The initial plan was for a precise bombardment to fall on the Italian artillery, which by this point was also joined by many British and French guns. However, this goal was difficult to accomplish due to the complete control of the skies that was exercised by the Allies. This control prevented any possibility of aerial spotting. 
The Austrian gas shells, upon which they placed great hopes for disabling some artillery batteries, also proved mostly ineffective due to the recent arrival of British gas masks, which proved far superior to the Italian ones that had previously been used. At 5.10am, the Austrian guns moved their fire from the front line to more distant targets, but the Italian guns were able to begin shelling the Austrian jumping-off positions, causing difficulties for the Austrians before the attack even got going. The only good news about any of these preparations is that they did mostly catch the Italians off guard, and this surprise was always a positive for the attacker. On the Piave, the attack began well. During the morning, over 100,000 men were able to cross the river. However, getting beyond the river would prove to be far more problematic. The Italians had gotten much better at a more elastic defense method, and because of this they were able to absorb the Austrian attacks without breaking, like it happened at Caporetto, where instead of absorbing the attack, the Italian lines had completely collapsed. This more effective defense meant that the Austrians were able to advance about a mile in some areas, but there was always resistance, and the deep set of defenses slowly ground down the attacks. While the Austrians were advancing, their strength was slowly sapped away by the Italian artillery and machine guns. Then, just as the Austrians were reaching the end of their abilities, the Italians hit them with a heavy counterattack, and many units were thrown back almost to where they had begun the day. On the second day, the situation was even worse for the Austrians. There were discussions about halting the attack on the Asiago and moving troops south, but even this question became somewhat academic, as it became clear that the troops who had made it across the Piave may not be able to hold on to their gains any longer, but at least long enough for reinforcements to reach them. Overall, the Austrians were running out of artillery shells, and their exposed positions, newly occupied the day before, became the target of seemingly endless barrages of Allied artillery fire and aerial bombardment as well. As the Austrians tried to hold on to their gains, and sometimes enlarge them, they were being slowly chewed up by the Italian defenders. On the third day, when the Austrians once again tried to attack, they were met not by disorganized, partially exhausted Italian troops, but instead fresh ones newly arriving at the front. Fighting would continue along the front for several more days, but it was clear to everyone involved that the period of greatest Italian weakness had already passed. By the morning of June 21st, it was obvious that the attack had stalled out, after achieving basically nothing. It had weakened the Austrian army to the point where an Italian counterattack was a serious threat. While next steps were still being considered in Austrian high command, the Germans now demanded that they stop any further attacks and instead send their six strongest divisions to the Western Front. We have not covered these events yet, but at the end of June, we were right around the time that the German spring offensives are starting to look like failures, and very costly failures at that. The German army in the West was having a serious manpower problem, and they needed Austrian help to man the front. The Austrians therefore retreated back across the river, which they did without experiencing much Italian pressure. The retreat across the river would, complete on, would be complete on the 23rd, without great incident. With the battle over, it was time to determine the cost. The Italians had lost around 85,000 casualties, about half of which were taken prisoner. On the Italian side, this was considered a triumph. They had stopped an Austrian attack in its tracks. After the total failure at Caporetto, this was a welcome change. On the Austrian side, the casualty figures were closer to 120,000. At this point in the war, the Austrians simply could not absorb that many casualties, and the men that were lost were essentially irreplaceable. This battle would be called the Battle of the Solstice, and it was a serious Austrian blunder. 
One Austrian general would describe his troops after the battle as a, quote, weary, dejected, and starving, their tattered uniforms crusted with reddish dry clay. Their weapons alone gave them any likeness to soldiers, for otherwise they looked like beggars roaming from pillar to post. For the Austrians, the effects of the failure was felt far more than just its casualties. The Austrian army, which had stuck together for so long, far longer than many would have thought, began to fray at the edges. From July to October, the army went from 650,000 to 400,000 men, many of those as deserters. There were no widespread mutinies. Men just sort of drifted away from the fighting, preferring to go back home. Those that did not desert were often beset by all kinds of diseases. By this point, the Austrian rations were far below sustainable levels, and the average body weight of the soldiers had dropped down to just 120 pounds, or 50 kilograms. This set the troops up to be very vulnerable to diseases, like dysentery and eventually the Spanish flu. Sanitation was also almost non-existent at the front. Laundry units were shut down because there was literally no soap for them to wash with. All of these issues reduced the already hugely understrength Austrian divisions to mere skeletons of their former selves. With the situation continuing to decline, in August the Austrian High Command informed the Germans that they would not be able to stay in the war past the end of 1918. At that point, the troops at the front would simply have to be brought back home to deal with unrest at home. At the front, the troops would spend the rest of the summer either trying to stay alive or preparing for the expected Italian attack. Losing the line at the Piav to the Italian attack was a foregone conclusion, and instead the Austrians aimed to simply fight a delaying action back to the primary line of resistance at the Tagliamento. This was a smart move, but even this cautious approach would prove to be untenable, especially after Bulgaria left the war in September. The removal of Bulgaria from the board freed up the Allied troops at Salonika to advance north, and there were simply no Austrian troops that could be sent to meet them. The war in the Balkans and in Italy was reaching its climax. All that was left was for the Italians to launch another attack, and it had a high likelihood of being a war-winning effort. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. 
Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. After the Battle of the Solstice, the obvious move for the Italians was to counterattack the Austrians at the first available opportunity. But even in these favorable circumstances, Diaz still resisted calls for an attack. For three months, Diaz remained cautious. In this decision, the government supported him. However, by October, it was clear that the Germans and Austrians were teetering on the brink, and there became important political reasons for the Italians to attack as soon as possible. In Rome, many politicians were concerned that if the Italian army did not attack and hopefully occupy most of the territory that the Austrians had taken, they would be denied some of the things that they had been promised when they entered the war. Remember, Italy had only entered the war in the first place when promised a piece of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. With pressure from Rome mounting, Diaz planned his attack for the second half of October, with the date finally being landed on the 24th. The goal of this attack was to push through the Austrian lines between the Austrian 5th and 6th armies. If this could be achieved, the Austrian positions on the Asiago and to the south near Monte Grappa would be forced back due to the simple danger of being cut off. If everything went really well, an attack would push the Austrians into headlong retreat. The Italians would have 57 infantry and 4 cavalry divisions to execute their attack, and this included 3 British, 2 French, and 1 division of Czech volunteers. This gave them an advantage in manpower, but they also held huge advantages in artillery and in the air. The superiority in these two areas had just continued to increase since the Austrians had launched their attack, and by October the advantage was suffocating. Borivik hoped to be able to trade space for time, and while this could have worked, it relied very heavily on the army sticking together. Retreats, even planned ones, can often turn into routes, especially when an army is in the state that the Austrians were in at that moment. Unfortunately for Borivik, in the middle of October, Emperor Karl made some decisions that greatly sabotaged his efforts at defending against the Italian onslaught. On October 15th, the Emperor had made a declaration that put the Empire on the path to disillusion by announcing even greater autonomy for the various nationalities inside of it, an announcement prompted by pressure from the Hungarians. This caused a lot of confusion in the Austrian units, and while many troops at the front would stay in place, in the rear areas it was complete chaos as entire units began to simply march home. The front line was somewhat unaffected at the start, but after a week on the 24th of October, the very same day that the Italian attack was scheduled to begin, two entire Hungarian divisions, believing that they no longer were required to serve in the Empire's armies, left the trenches and started home. In this environment of disorganization, any coherent defense was simply impossible. While a coherent defense would prove impossible, that did not mean that incoherent defense would not be costly for both sides. A Monte Grappa, the fighting became a bloodbath, and after six days of fighting, the Italians had lost 25,000 men, with very little to show for it. This failure was mostly due to a complete lack of coordination between the infantry and artillery, a problem that had plagued the Italian army for the entire war. But the situation on Grappa was favorable for the Austrians. In other areas, it was the exact opposite. On the Piave, the start of the offensive was slightly delayed, but when it did start, it began well. At the start of the attack, pontoon bridges were thrown across the river, and throughout the day, a constant stream of troops moved across. 
The number of troops crossing the bridges had to be controlled so that they did not collapse the fragile structures, but they proved more than capable of getting enough men across to keep the advance going. It was actually a British division that would spearhead one of these advances, and a British divisional history would say at this point that, quote, not many Austrians stayed to fight. The majority, surprised and dismayed at the failure of the wire to hold up the attack, streamed back inland in disorder, almost too fast to give the riflemen and Lewis gunners much chance to shoot them down, end quote. In some areas, even when the Austro-Hungarian units chose to stand and fight, they were often betrayed by the units on their flanks, who would surrender or just retreat, leaving any defender still in the line to just be surrounded and captured or killed. The day after the attack began, Borivik would report to Vienna that the resolve of his troops, especially those that were not German, was weakening greatly, and that there were already several reports of mutinies. Borivik began to order a series of retreats, in an effort to save as many troops as possible, at least those that still listened to his orders. This saved some units, but others were already pulling back as fast as their feet could carry them. Borivik told the government that they should try and begin negotiations with the Italians. He hoped to offer them a retreat to pre-war boundaries in exchange for a peaceful withdrawal. While they retreated, many Austrian units destroyed their supplies, with large ammunition dumps being lit on fire to light the night sky. Other units never received the order to retreat, and were forced to either surrender or into heroic defenses that few would ever live to remember. While the Austrians were scrambling back, the Italian advances continued. By the 30th, there was a non-stop flow of Italians over the river, and they were taking tens of thousands of prisoners, at almost no cost to themselves. On October 28th, Bohemia and Galicia declared their independence from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. On the 29th, Slovenia, Croatia, and Bosnia followed suit. On the 30th, Borivik asked his headquarters what he should do if he could not defend the borders of the empire. The response to him was simply to keep as many units together as long as possible and to try to bring them home. Once they reached Vienna, they would be separated and sent to their new nations. By November 2nd, the Italians had recaptured all of the Asiago Plateau, and they were advancing on the Tagliamento. The Austrians were now actively looking to end the war, but the Italians didn't want to stop now. After three years of failure, they finally had their victory. But the Austrian army was disintegrating, and the empire was falling apart. It was only a matter of time before the end finally came, and into the war, an end to an empire. It's a long, long way to Tipperary.